This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good evening, you're tuned in to the evening edition with me, Ezra Zaid. This is the third episode of Positive Lives, a show about the human stories of Malaysia's HIV-AIDS journey. On today's show, we talk about empowerment, the role it plays in HIV prevention and treatment. Our first guest for today has been an advocate for empowerment through rights and knowledge for many years. Hi, my name is Marina Mahathir. I am a writer and an activist. Datian Paduka Marina Mahathir chaired the Malaysian AIDS Council for over a decade. She talks about Malaysia's early challenges in HIV-AIDS, her advocacy through education, and how far we've come. In 1992-93, I started to notice that HIV was becoming a problem in the world. And I always thought that I'd like to do something, but I was always thinking of fundraising because that's what I had experience in. And it so happened that at that time, um, the Malaysian AIDS Foundation was formed and they were looking for more board members and, of course, board members who could raise funds. So I got a call from uh, Datuk Guru Sami, Datuk Ramani Guru Sami, uh, whom I knew, uh, and she said, you know, we've got this AIDS Foundation, Malaysian AIDS Foundation, we don't have enough women on the board, we'd like to invite you. So I said, okay, uh, I'll go, they have a dinner um, to introduce me to, to everyone and just to tell me what it's all about. And I remember that it's so clearly, I mean, it was at the Ming Court Hotel, now it's called something else, I think, Chorus. And I had an orange shirt and a black skirt. I mean, I remember it so clearly. I don't know why. By the end of the dinner event, Datin Marina was made the chair of the Malaysian AIDS Foundation, which raises funds to support the Malaysian AIDS Council and other partner organizations. I'd never chaired anything in my life. Um, but I thought, OK, you know, since I was thinking of doing this and, and um, why not, you know, let's, let's just take it on. But that was the early years of HIV in Malaysia. There was still much ignorance about HIV-AIDS. All the people that I used to go to uh, get fun, funding from, donations from, I mean, they'd, they'd give me the time of day, but it was very clear they didn't quite understand uh, because they would say things like, why should we give money to these people and, and that sort of thing. So I realised that I had to learn more in order to... to persuade them um, because they, they didn't know enough and and that's really how the advocacy started and because I was doing that and I was getting a high profile from doing it and then so the following year then I got elected President of Malaysia AIDS Council. So that was the start of it. Dati Marina went on to be President of the Malaysian AIDS Council for 12 years until 2005. But before she could educate others on HIV-AIDS, Datin Marina recalls how she had to buck up on her own knowledge. You know, I, I thought, if I'm going to take this on, I, I really have to know my stuff, you know. So I said about reading and talking to people and really learning everything I could about HIV, but also learning from the people most affected, um, most vulnerable to HIV. And, and that was really quite a process because, you know, I had quite a sheltered background, to say the least, and suddenly I was talking to you know sex workers and drug users and transgender people and all sorts of marginalized uh, groups, 
because they were the most vulnerable. So they're the ones who, who were teaching me. One of her earliest teachers was Jack Singh, who was probably the first Malaysian with HIV to come out in public about his status. I remember that I used to write my column and I'd talk about AIDS and I would talk about people infected with HIV and then Jack would call me up and say, Marina, you can't say that. You have to say people living with HIV, you can't say infected. And So he was really uh, educating me a great deal and as were all the pioneers, you know, in... in the whole work, yeah. Medical knowledge and treatment for HIV-AIDS was still poor in the early 90s. This was accompanied by a strong stigma towards people with HIV. There was no treatment, absolutely no treatment. So you equate, you know, HIV with just death. That's it. You know, I remember going to MU, actually, a, a big student forum, and this girl asked me, you know, what's going to happen to all these people, and I said, what do you mean, you know? And she said, well, they're going to die. I said, well, so are you. Um, Which was a bit confrontational, I know, and quite shocking, but it's true, because uh, the problem for people with HIV is not about dying, it's about living. You know, how are they going to live uh, from day to day? Treatment for HIV-AIDS improved over the years, but it was still expensive. It took around 2,000 ringgit for a person to afford medicine for a single month. Datin Marina recalls how she and other advocates found themselves poring over trade agreements to find ways to make cheaper generics or bring down the prices of medication. People started uh, floating the idea. This was in the uh, mid to late 90s. Uh, floating the idea of compulsory licensing, which was a WTO provision, World Trade Organization provision, that if there is an emergency, then you don't have to stick to the patents for um, life-saving drugs. You could break them to produce generics. So we learned up about uh, compulsory licensing. I mean, it was so amazing that we, we never, never thought... I certainly didn't that I'd have to learn up trade agreements. Um, And then we started to advocate for that. Initially, their efforts were met with resistance. The Malaysian government didn't consider trade agreements in the context of medication. So in 1999, when Malaysia hosted the 5th Regional AIDS Conference, otherwise known as the ICAP, the Malaysian AIDS Council came up with an idea. What we did, I mean, it was a bit sneaky. I was the chair. It was the largest number by that point, uh, largest number of participants, 4,300 people. And we had, of course, the head of UNAIDS. I mean, it was a very, very important conference. And at the opening, we had Prime Minister um, come and open it. Of course, we had to give the talking points. So we wrote in the thing about compulsory licensing, and he mentioned it. And I remember very well, I was sitting next to the Minister of Health, who was Chua Juming at the time. And, um, and I remember he turned to me and said, what is compulsory licensing? So in that instant, I had to explain to him what it was. And that what it means is that we can make the drugs cheaper. Um, well, what happened was, of course, everyone took the signal. So what happened was that the threat of compulsory licensing was enough. And the drug companies just reduced their prices because the last thing they wanted is for for government to bring generics in. 
And so then they, they, they brought it down. It came, became 200 a month, you know. Yeah, not manageable for most people. So, um, so that was a real uh, important point uh, in the AIDS advocacy. And of course, you know, we had people with HIV on stage in front of government officials and everything. We opened the conference with a video done by Dane Syed of Jack and, and his life, you know, and, um, and what it was like, a short video. And then when the video ended, there was Jack and his mom on stage in front of everyone. It was amazing. And then everyone stood up, you know, to applaud them, including PM, including, I mean, everyone had to, you know, this was an incredibly brave act. Um, and, um, yeah, so that, that was a moment, actually, that I, I was particularly proud of. In a bit, Datin Marina Mahadeo talks about handling difficult questions from the public throughout her advocacy. Stay tuned to Positive Lives on BFM 89.9. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to the Evening Edition with me, Ezra Zaid. Today on Positive Lives, we've been featuring Datin Paduka Marina Mahathir. Datin Marina has been a long-time advocate in the HIV-AIDS sector in Malaysia and served as the president of the Malaysian AIDS Council for 12 years. Education was a huge part of Datin Marina's advocacy, but that also meant that she had to handle a variety of difficult questions. There was this thing about why do you have to talk about condoms all the time? If I ask, I, you know, I do this sort of nasty, <laughs> nasty things with a smile on my face. I say, if I ask all of you, have you slept with anyone other than your spouse in the past two weeks? All of you are going to say no, right? You know, like this. But a certain percentage of you might be lying, right? So. I'm worried about that percentage, you know. So I give all of you the knowledge. If you don't think it applies to you, it's okay. Just store it in your brain, you know, as information. But if the ones that need the knowledge, I might be saving your life. Yeah. So, diam. Datin Marina also recalls working with religious leaders in the early 2000s. I see, one of the big things that we did, which was really, I think, good, was the, um, the Islam and AIDS manual that we did, where we worked with uh, religious leaders. We worked with Jakim, mm -hmm. and we worked with the religious leaders to develop a training program. And, and that was done when, you know, we, we went around the country and we were training um, people like Kadis and Ketua, Kampung, and, you know, not not the guys who sit in the office, but the guys on the ground who were already facing it. And they were very appreciative because they were seeing this thing, you know, in the kampongs and all. They were seeing this disease and they didn't know what it was, how to handle it. People die, how do you bury them, da 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 da, you know. Um, and we realized that really, really, you know, education is everything. We, there was one session, I think it was in Sabah, and they were talking to this, uh, all these religious leaders, mm -hmm. you know, that's a very big title, men and women. 
And then talking about condoms and they were cost like, you know, very mm-hmm. oh, you know, no condoms, no condoms. Finally, someone had the bright idea. I think it was Nate Farmy at the time, he was the ED and he said, Have you guys ever seen a condom? And they all had to say, Well, actually no. And so they went out to the nearest 7-Eleven or whatever, bought a whole lot of condoms, came, distribute, and then said, okay, open it, take a look at it, hold it. And they said, we're scared of this thing. And you know, it's as basic and simple as that. Ignorance breeds fear. But knowledge, you know, knowledge is power, knowledge empowers knowledge you know, clears the light, you know. Another person who had great influence on Datin Marina was Dr. Jonathan Mann. He's one of the pioneers in the international campaign against AIDS. Datin Marina met Dr. Mann in 1994 during the first AIDS conference that she attended. It was really my my first time being exposed and, and uh, it was really... And that time was good because nobody knew me, so I could just, you know, I mean, I was so new. Uh, wander around and and for me the pivotal moment for me was um, uh, listening to Dr. Jonathan Mann in the plenary. He was the head of the WHO uh, Global Program on AIDS and then by that time he had left and he had gone on this is before UNAIDS was even formed he'd gone on to Harvard um, to the François Xavier Bagnon School of uh, health and Human Rights, and he was heading it. And so he came and he gave this talk about the link between health and human rights. And for me, the penny dropped. You know, I thought it was just brilliant. And, and since, I mean, that was the most influential moment for me because after that, I saw it entirely through human rights. And that informed all the work I did since then and, and, and ever since that, you know, health is a human rights issue. If you violate people's human rights, their health is going to be affected. You know, if you don't give the proper health, education, facilities, everything, it is a violation of the human rights. So that was really it for me. Um, And that happened, luckily, very early on, 1994. Yeah. Um, and the story of of um, Jonathan Mando, um, after that, I really, really wanted to meet him. You know, that was like for years, you know, that was 94. And I, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to meet him until, must have been, it was Geneva Conference. And Geneva Conference was one year before I kept, so it must have been 98. And I always, always thought, oh, I want to go to to Harvard and sit at his feet and, and learn from him, you know. So Geneva Conference, I finally got my chance because I moderated a panel which he was speaking. And that was like, oh, my God, you know. And then after that, all the speakers and moderators were invited to a dinner by the organizers. And so I went to the dinner and I sat at at his table, but I was feeling so shy and so new because all these big, big, big names in the AIDS world, the scientists, researchers, doctors, everything, they were all there, and he was there. A very pleasant man, you know, really, really mild-looking man. And I remember, you know, I thought, 
I can't really talk to him now. Maybe another time he he knows me now, and maybe I'll get another chance. That was in July um, 1998. And in September 1998, uh, Jonathan Mann got on a plane, Swiss Air, from New York to Geneva with his wife, and the plane crashed. And he died, him and his wife. And so I never got my chance. I, I remember being so shocked. I couldn't believe it. I just met him. I just met him. So really, really, you know, it tells you that you should never let go of any opportunity. You just have to take it because you don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, the loss to the AIDS world was just gigantic. Dr. Marina kept to Dr. Mann's principle of health as a human right. That informed much of her work in advocacy. One of the outcomes of this was an educational television series for women's empowerment. Well, it was born out of the HIV work uh, because in all that work, I got very concerned about women getting infected. And that time, the numbers were very, very small. Very small, actually marginal, you know. Um, and it was hard to talk about women with HIV because you could hardly see it, you know. It was not. It was all about drug users and, you know, it's all men. And, but we knew from the experience of other countries that it was coming. At that time, I was on NASIWIT, the National Advisory Committee for Integration of Women and Development. And I was the head of the AIDS committee. And at that time also, I was representing NGOs on the National Coordinating Committee for HIV-AIDS. And so the NASIWIT uh, group said, you know, you better bring up the issue of women. In fact, we should have a representative on the NCCA uh, to talk about women's issues. So I dutifully went and I said to them that, you know, NASIWIT would like a woman's representative. And they said, when we have a woman's issue, we'll call you. I mean, there was no foresight, none, you know. And, and look, now we're up to like 19%, 20%, you know, from nothing, from virtually nothing. But we knew it had to come because anecdotally we already knew and there's just numbers were too small. But that, that's the trend, you know. So I was concerned about it, but I also knew that um, information was not enough. What actually stops women from being able to protect themselves is their relationship with the men, husbands, boyfriends, and all that. They could not say no. They could not get the guys to wear condoms, that sort of thing. And this has nothing to do with the virus. It has to do with social attitudes, knowledge, and religious attitudes. Um, so I thought that you know women really needed to be educated about their rights. They have a right to their bodily integrity. They had their right to health just like anyone else. And there's nothing in religion that goes against that. So I was thinking like how to, to do this. And I had been in the Philippines uh, for something or other. And I got interviewed by this TV program there called XYZ, which was a program for young women. Um, so Lena Tan had been doing a lot of work for us uh, at Mac. So one day I was sitting with Lena and I said, you know, can we do some program like XYZ, you know, because it's, it's um, I think it's a nice way of doing it. It could be fun. Do you think we could do that? And she said, yeah, we could. 
So that was the beginning of the popular educational television series called 3R, Respect, Relax, Respond. And instead of mandatory HIV testing, Datin Marina emphasizes the need for comprehensive sex education. One of my biggest failures is the introduction of mandatory premarital testing, HIV testing for Muslim couples. You know, health policy is a federal responsibility, but the states were doing it under their religious uh, departments. To me, there's something constitutionally dodgy about this, you know, because it's also not coming out of the religious department budget, it's coming out of the health budget. But the health de- uh, department has not, you know, the policy is, is not this, you know. They are adhering to WHO policy, you know, WHO policy is no mandatory testing. And what has it done? It's done absolutely nothing. Because from what people tell me, they don't get counselling, they don't, you know, it's, it's just like our routine, stick your arm out, you know, take your blood, okay, you don't have it. You know, there's no counselling, nobody talks about window period. And then you get ridiculous things where it, it becomes a bureaucratic thing to, to take off. I mean, I know a couple who are both HIV positive. They know it. They wanted to get married. And then they were asked to take HIV test. They said, but we know HIV positive. And, you know, it's a waste of money, you know. So to me, it's, it's like... And, and there's been no evaluation, no accountability for this. It's just carrying on and on and on. I think we're still back to the basics that we need to stress education, 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 because that's the only thing uh, that is prevention, yeah? I mean, people think that sex education is all biology. It's not. It's also about relationships, values, you know, ethics, uh, gender, people under different pressures, whether you're male or female. And it's silly to not want to talk about LGBT because that's a reality. That's a reality. If you only talk about, uh, you know, heterosexual norms, you're leaving out, you're probably leaving out whole, you know, swaths of people who you are not serving. I mean, really look at it. What are you doing this education for? It's to serve the people. It's to protect people, right? So if you leave groups of people out, basically what you're saying is, I'm not interested in protecting them. And then you think that they're all ring-fenced. They're not. And people mix. You know, intersectionality is what you call it. You know, your son might be a drug addict. So he's two things. He's a family member as well as a drug addict. You can't ring-fence drug addicts and say, I have nothing to do with them. You know, that's why Jonathan Mann was my hero. <laughs> he made it so clear. That was writer and activist Datin Paduka Marina Mahathir. In a bit, we'll be featuring Lina Tan, Lao Ngai Yuen and Kartini Arifin to talk about 3R. Stay tuned to Positive Lives on BFM 89.9. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9.
You're tuned in to the evening edition with me, Ezra Zaid, and this is Positive Lives. Now, earlier in the show, Datin Marina Mahadev talked about starting the educational television series called 3R: Respect, Relax, Respond. 3R is a program on women's empowerment, but its topics ran the gamut from reproductive health to gender equality and other social issues. If you watched much of Malaysian television in the 2000s, this would probably sound familiar to you. Sebenarnya kan Tini rasa kan kita semua tahu yang stereotip dengan prejudis ni salah tapi kita masih juga cakap. Jadi apa yang kita nak buat? Wah, kan nampak eksiden dahsyat di luar sana banyak darah. Dia punya kereta langgar motosikal. Cina Melayu ke India? Itu kereta punya Melayu, ha? itu motosikal punya kesian Cina. Apa bezanya? Kalau dia Melayu kita tolong, kalau dia Cina kita tak tolong. What's the difference? Does it matter? Kita semua kan manusia. On the show, we have Lina Tan. My name is Lina, and I am the um, I run this uh, production company called Red Communications, so Redcom, and um, I created 3R um, in the year 1999 along with uh, Datin Paduka Marina Mate. And also two women who were former hosts on the popular TV program. Here's Lau Ngai Yuan, who's currently heading Kakisini, the global entrepreneurship movement, as well as the NGO Women Girls. Hi, my name is uh, Ngai Yuan, Lau Ngai Yuan. I'm the host of 3R from the year 2000. I'm the Ori, okay, the original host from the year 2000 till about 2004. And here's Kartini Arifin, director of radio at I Am For You. Hi, I'm Tini. And uh, I was the three-hour host, not the Ori one lah, but <laughs> I think it's a second batch. Uh, that would be from 2002 right up to 2012. The first season of Three R made its debut in the year 2000. We were very clear about wanting to create a show that addresses some of these issues and addresses issues that relate to young women. And at that point. We didn't really have any reference. I mean, other than seriously, Oprah Winfrey, which, um, and we didn't have, of course, we didn't have Google, we didn't have, um, you know, Facebook. There's no such thing in that time, and um, so literally, it was a real trial and error for us to try and figure out. But what we had was we had a whole bunch of very good, a very very good team who was very very dedicated towards thinking that we needed to send our message. In number one, very interesting way, so that the young people can relate and not shove it down their throats. Um, number two, make it in such a way that there is um, um, that that the the that somehow we we come across as um, that we 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 know what we're talking about and that we stand for something. We're very clear what we stand for. The show reached out to a wide range of audiences. It, it was quite revolutionary, and also how we managed to get the show on. <coughs> On the media that time on TV, um, because at that point um, Media Prima there was, uh, was there was TV Three which was doing very well, and also there's Astro who had just kind of started um, broadcasting, so we 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 put our show on both TV Three and on Astro, so it will air on TV Three at seven thirty on Sunday, and then one week later it'll actually air on Astro. So we had a really we covered a good wide range of audience who. We we interestingly we targeted women between the ages of um, 19, which is in college, you know, like six, when they start entering the college to first jobbers. That was our narrow narrow casting of the the target group. But interesting, we had huge 
viewers from kids from school girls from schools um Mother's boys and girls <laughs> but, but and i don't understand why every time the boys they watch and they have to have disclaimer kak saya lelaki tapi saya tengok juga uh, yeah. say, yes fine <laughs> i know they always say that so, don't have lah why why you must say just watch okay je i don't ju- ramai je lelaki tengok <laughs> On the show, the hosts regularly engaged with men or boys to educate each other on issues like relationships and reproductive health. One of the episodes featured three male hosts alongside the female hosts to talk about their understanding of menstruation. Nampaknya anak perempuan anda sudah menghadapi period kali pertama. Sekarang, sila terangkan period kepada anak perempuan anda ini. Setiap orang perempuan yang dah besar okay, Normal, dia akan datang period Kenapa oh. banyak darah? Dia, kita akan period 28 days Papa, papa, papa ni semua belajar dulu Yang perempuan punya, bulat uh. macam ni Telur uh. ha, dia okay. Dia panggil ovum Apa ovum eh? Ovum, ya Lepas tu baru ada kawan dia Barulah yang obium ni akan disenyawakan. Disenyawakan tu kalau lelaki ni nak nak terfikir tak apa-apa. Ah silakan silakan. Okay, dia, dia, dia macam dia macam bujo sikit. Ni apa tu? Ah, dia macam dia macam tauge. Sebenarnya kan tak tahulah sama ada uh, tini yang 12 tahun ni boleh faham ke tidak apa yang diceritakan. I think I was really glad that the show is the show. Um, because we really talk a lot about how to make it better, like all the time, um, how to say certain things stronger. We change our lines. We change how we're saying certain things. You know how you could, you could skin a cat a thousand ways, but how do you skin it in a way that most people can get it and that it will affect them? That they want to do something, and and searching for that one line, searching for that one way um, of presenting what we are trying to say, um, uh, was my life mm-hmm. at that point. Um, I live, breathe, eat, three R. I think most of us did. Um, it, it was something we, we talk about nonstop. Um, if we truly believe in a subject, we'll bring it to the table and we'll say, this is how we're going to break it down. This is how we're going to talk about it. I can join. I had to take it. Kalau tak, macam mana nak hang out with my friends? Nanti mereka ingat, I tak cool pula. You use ecstasy, you guna ecstasy. Tak ada problem, tak ada stress nak makan ecstasy. Mana-ngada lah, kononnya ikut trend lah tu. Hey, please. It, it was like a, a daily learning experience. Um, every day you're learning. You're learning on the fly. You're, you're learning all the time. Um, and sometimes we feel like we couldn't put out stuff enough, often enough. And at that point, we always have this this thing about, why this news ah? What are they covering? Uh? There's so many things happening here that's so important. What is the news covering about accidents? Who cares? And at the same time, you know. But you, yes, you're right. You can imagine like there were so many of us, the host, and then there's one producer who has to take all this thing. What? What? Okay. So, yeah, yeah. But but they had really good um, uh, directors as well yeah. that got us to really understand the issues and really peel the issues with us. 3R stayed true to its values of gender equality and rights, and through the issues they presented on the show, they encouraged young people to be critical about society's expectations and where they stand. I mean, I guess it came from a stem of feminism plus human rights. Uh, and for, for instance, if you talk about, like, say, rape, it's never a grey area where, you know, it's because maybe she was wearing a short skirt or maybe yeah, she was asking for it. No, we come from a very, we come from a place that, no, rape's a crime. And it is a crime that should not be victimized. The victim should not be victimized. So we come from very strong 
um, angles in that sense. It starts from that point of time when you are in school right down to when you're at home thinking, why is my brother going off to play football and I'm not allowed to because I have to stay at home and wash plates because, you know, girls are just not allowed to go out of the house and why? Because it's dangerous, you know? So we wanted to get young people to start thinking those kind of issues through and say why. After this, Lina, Yuan and Tini talk about their grassroots efforts through 3R. Stay tuned to Positive Lives, BFM 89.9. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to the evening edition with me, Ezra Zaid, and this is Positive Lives. We're still with Lina, Tini, and Yuen. They recall how fans of the 3R program used to write in to confide about their personal issues. These letters also shed light on the challenges that remain private to many people. There's one letter that I remember until today, and I, I felt that personally impacted me. Um, there was a letter from a girl from Sabah or Sarawak who wrote and said that her brother was forcing her into sex, so raping her. And she said she doesn't, and it has been going on for for many years. And the letter stopped then, like, what should we, what should I do? And, and we felt, uh, for me, it was, I felt very depressed after I read that letter because I'm like, gosh, you know, like, this is happening and, you know, she's being raped. I felt that that letter at that point also, she doesn't know what it was. Yeah. She doesn't even know it was sex mm. because she said, Dia angkat kaki saya dan letakkan, it wasn't even Zakar because I think she used some of the terms that, you know, you're burung or something yeah, yeah, yeah. inside Long me. So she described it and, you know, and actually ki, that, that the, the girl doesn't even know what is what happening to her. And, and that's one letter. There's, you know, there are other letters that probably come in about father, grandfather, you know, like, and, and it's unbelievable. Mm. So that was, that personally impacted me and I felt that this should, this cannot happen. And it's, why is this happening, you know? Why if it happens to yeah. me, you know? And oh, I have uh, sisters of that and, age. And to think that their yeah. outlet is a television show. Yeah. yeah. And that there's no one yeah. that they could talk to in their community, in their schools, mm-hmm. around them. That is actually really heart wrenching. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 and we, what we had the power to do then was when we get, we get those kind of letters, not a lot, but we do get, and, and it impacts all of us. I remember a letter too. And, and um, so we work a lot with the NGOs, mm-hmm. like um, Nation AIDS Council, Women AIDS Organization, AWAM. <clears throat> we actually contact these women's groups because we're, we're not, mm-hmm. and we, we get them because they specialise in these things and they know what to do. So 3R also set out on their own campaigns to educate others on gender equality. But it also yeah. got us on ground. That was one of the biggest motivation for us, um, for 3R, to be actually going to schools, going to communities, and we also go to corporate uh, workspaces and talk to people about um, their rights not to be uh, disturbed, to yeah. be cat whistled, to, um, to, to be harassed. It, it used to be such a norm, like yeah. a normal thing that you could never finish a day without someone cat whistling at you but yeah. we told the boys and the men at workplaces that you want ke you nak ke kalau saya buat dekat you macam tu ataupun dekat kakak you ke adik you ke mak you ke you know <laughs> oh and, we, and we showed them yeah, yeah, yeah. and how that make them feel 
um, so that they understand the idea of respect. I think a lot of times, maybe perhaps they don't. Also, I think what's revolutionary was the fact that, you know, Lina likes to put us in all these places, right? Because she's got all this master plan. So I remember this, this series of workshops, okay, about sexual harassment, which we had to do for Ford. Okay, yeah. so Ford wanted to... Em- to educate uh, the the factory yeah. boys. Actually, just a quick background on that boys, one. Yeah. Ford was our sponsor, mm-hmm. and the CEO was a woman, mm-hmm. and she was an Australian woman. I mean, she she got harassed in her own factory when she brought a friend around, and I mean, we were cat whistling to the CEO because of course the factory workers didn't know that. Wait, wait, wait! Like the CEO's like, oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> it's just embarrassing. I'm bringing around a friend, and then I'm getting cat calls in my own factory. So, said, could you do a series? So. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, we went. So can you imagine, uh, twenty something very young girls, and you know, but because we had the show, we had to speak to the factory boys, and at a session, <clears throat> they were about twenty to thirty boys. factory boys. Only guys. Only guys. We were the facilitator. We were the facilitator. Three of us. So we had a module which we worked with Awam about. You know, what is sexual harassment? Why is it, you know, sexual harassment is wrong? Why you need to respect? We had to talk about this to boys who works mm-hmm. in factory who was like, you now want to tell me that I tak boleh call you Kat Long and, <laughs> you know? It was a learning experience for, for me as well and for us. Because then, at the end of the session, we we didn't expect all of them to... Con- convert uh-huh. or to to yeah. suddenly change, but at least we've got faces going like, okay, yeah, you know what, mm-hmm. this will have to stop. I'm I'm gonna because not do it anymore. Not do it anymore, yeah. a- and we have to further reemphasize to them because this is a hurt mentality. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe for most of them, it's not something that they do, but because my friend what I I follow, otherwise I'm gonna feel like I'm out of the group. Um, so we saw some some change, some slight changes, or even like a reflection after that. Like, okay, you know what, you know, you're right. The show, having been born from HIV advocacy, dealt on HIV AIDS. While most media depictions of HIV AIDS were negative at that time, the three R folks focused on an empowered image. You know, HIV AIDS is all about the gen. The, 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 a lot of it stems from inequality, gender equality, and understanding that not many people understand. If you're a wife and your husband is positive, and you have no idea, you're the only man you ever marry is your husband. You know, and you're positive because of him. It is a, a status thing. You know, it is a status thing. The wife. So a lot of, if you. If you look at the what we were trying to do, we were trying to address that imbalance in status with the show that we were doing. We had an episode solely on HIV. In fact, we had a couple of episodes, a few, a few talking about HIV. But we we approached it from a very humanistic angle, and also from the the young people affecting them. In fact, um, we we told stories. I think we, we prostitution, prostitution, yeah, usage of condoms. We talk about prostitutes um, not being able to say no. Yeah. We talk about women not yeah. not being able to say no to the husband wanting sex. Um, stigma. We talk a lot about stigma. We also wanted to normalize how these people look. You always think that it's always portrayed as some like drug using person in the alley who's looking like they're on their not bed. talking about machi, right? Yeah, yeah. and not thinking yeah. about that. Hey, so I remember we we visited uh, this 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 camp this NGO in Kelantan and. Mm-hmm. And the young girl who was positive there, who was out, she was like, 
19 or younger than yeah, the host, or in fact, same age as the host, she was talking, she was very empowered, but she's positive, got married young and got it from her husband, but she was um, absolutely very empowered. She, she's saying, that, no, I know, I want women to know that, you know, this is what can happen and blah, blah, blah. The challenge, I think, the most the most apparent challenge for me was the fact that most of them want the platform to talk about it because they 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 probably have come out and said, I want to empower others. So mm-hmm. they have agreed. In fact, I remember I also went with the crew to Indonesia mm-hmm. to shoot an episode on LGBT and most of the girls came out and they wanted to talk, you know, that we didn't have to pixelize and, you know, it wasn't like by force, you know, it wasn't because of, oh, I'm not glamour, so that's why I, I, I go interview on TV. So most of them are willing to talk about it. But I think the main struggle was the fact that coming back with the footages and there were people who didn't want this to to come out because they wanted to play safe. Yeah. So, like, uh, we had major censorship. And, in fact, I think yeah. the whole episode <laughs> from Indonesia when I went was not... I mean, I went, I, it was not uh-huh. aired. Yeah. It was if not Censorship was, interestingly, the biggest bane for the show. was because the biggest challenge for the show. You can't... Uh, I, remember, I still remember when we did this whole episode on getting pregnant um, like how how you can get all these myths about getting pregnant you know like and uh, they looked at it and said no 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 you can't do this but we were so careful in the treatment because we had and I still remember this shot where uh, Yuan was the, the the one who got pregnant the sceptical one got pregnant and then she was uh, and then these two people were talking and one of them was actually getting um, going to get married so she was just worried like she's like oh you know I heard that you know you, if, you, if you do it the first time you won't get pregnant or I heard that if you if you um, you know eat a pineapple after that you won't get pregnant and then so there was you and with a, with a baby pretending to be this mother with a baby rocking her and saying like no yeah right you know, she was like it was quite it was very funny but they saw and they got scared they said oh can you take this out can you take that out and we fought so hard to keep that segment in eventually we compromised we kept I think we shot about five myths you know, I yeah. think they they, they, they they agreed to keep let's keep three mm-hmm. and we had Draw to take out two or something yeah. yeah the values of empowerment never left the three R crew and host themselves I, I mean of course 70 days later I, it brings tears to my eyes to just listen to what Tini and, and Nayan has to say I mean Joyful tears. Joyful tears. <laughs> no, it's it's so <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> what did they bring these two monsters? <laughs> and I mean, it, in in a sense, like for me, it's the fact that the 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 vision of when we started to bring these young women and the whole idea, we wanted young women to be role models and we wanted the host to be role models themselves. Flash forward now to where we are now. The, the young women we we saw in the room and are role models in themselves. I mean, Yuan is, you know, really running running her own NGOs that's really doing work for women. So Stini, she's bringing all this advocacy work. Rafida writes scripts that really talks and empowers women. And uh, Azar is actually now doing being a counsellor for, for marriage and um, Selena is doing her own business. And it's just amazing that to see that they are role models now and they are empowering and they are, are role models to all these young women now and they are empowering other young women to come to that level. So I think for me, that's the emotional part of it. When I see it, I just it's it feels like you see your child growing up and you you feel that sense of pride and happiness and and, and you do. I mean, it is. It's, it's 
it's an unbelievable, undescribable feeling about now that. Now she finally, like for example, uh, Datuk, Datuk Paduka Marina Mahathir now is calling us, oh, look at my girls. <laughs> oh yeah, Yuan is one of my girls before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's great. Before this, when I first started, uh, it was like, stay close to me if you want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of that relationship. Now it's like, oh, she's my girl. So that that's a good uh, chop. Okay, Lulus. Chop Lulus. According to Lina, Yuan and Tini, the outcomes of programs like 3R shouldn't stop there. Uh, do more programs like this need to happen? Absolutely. Is 3R the only program? No. Many more needs to happen. And I, I think a lot of people are already doing pretty good jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that we need to have more of this sort of conversation. Uh, more of this sort of people wanting to do this sort of stuff and not just putting out a viral video for the sake of, but having, putting in context, putting in, what am I trying to say? What is my stand? So those are, those are important. The idea of the, the, the three ambassadors you enter is it's really what we have been also advocating, like, like hey, everybody can pick up a camera. We did something with, uh, I'm for you, with Titi, uh-huh. actually, uh, last... Last year. year, last year, where we got a couple of young people to Twelve, do 12. twelve, yeah, to to create own little videos, content. and just be you. You can be your own ambassador. You know, look, you are the voice, but you have to think. Or we can give you, we can give you the tools. You you have the tools, the physical tools. You need, you just need the tools to think a little bit. We need to amplify it by getting a lot more people involved. And say, for example, the twelve finalists that we got for Agent Three R. I mean, they are good young change makers but they need to also have a team that supports them mm. to guide them and mm. you know and it needs to be collective from all parties and you see it feels like it's you against the world right but if everyone else is on this bandwagon with us and and supporting and understanding the fact that we need to have gender equality we need to make the conversation respect everybody needs to to think that way because then otherwise, then there's so much impact that you can do. That was Lina Tan, Kartini Arifin and Lao Ngai Yuan. If you missed any part of this episode of Positive Lives, you can download the podcast via our BFM app and that's available on the Apple App Store as well as on Google Play. This episode was made in collaboration with Kamal Sohami Fazil from the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at University Malaya. You've been listening to the Evening Edition, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.